Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 104. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again on the show this week. And I'm going to make this fast because I am rusty as hell. You will hear it during this episode where some of my questions coming right at Adam are super clumsy. I'm like, and then derp, herp, beep. And we get there eventually. And Adam's a great guest and he's got a lot of great insight. But I myself am rusty, and if I'm going 100 miles an hour, it's because my time is super at a premium right now, and I'm kind of all over the place here. But Adam St. Pierre is a coach and a trainer. Check out his website. It's astpcoaching.com, and he'll do ultra running. He'll do Nordic skiing, ski mountaineering, Ironman triathlons. He'll do all manner of endurance sport coaching, and he's got tremendous insight into all of these sports. But when I talk to him, I haven't interviewed someone in a while. I mean, we are about a month out from the birth of my second daughter. She's healthy. Mom's doing good. Sister's doing great. Everything is aces so far. But man, it's a lot of work. People will ask you, is it harder going from zero child to one? Zero child? Good God. Going from zero children to one child or going from one child to two? And my answer is it's much harder going from zero to one. That's a total lifestyle change. Going from one to two, you kind of already know what you're doing a little bit more. And you go, okay, I recognize this. I'm not gripping the club so tight. I feel much better about it. That said, it's very task heavy. And all of the interviews I did up through 103, I did before she was born. So it's been like a month since I've interviewed someone. And it shows in this episode. But like I said, Adam does a great job. And once we get going... And once I sort of ask him the clumsy question and I sort of fumble my way into it, he does great and he provides great insight. like to give a shout here to Steph Gaddy. She was the one who set me up with Adam. She knew him. She's good friends with Adam and his wife. She went to law school with his wife. You'll hear that story in here. No, you won't actually. Regardless, she is the one who set this up and I'm happy she did because this was enormous fun. Getting more insight into endurance sports and what it's like to be an elite athlete. We talk a little bit about the Olympics. We talk about how he doesn't like to listen to music while he runs, which I find insane, but we dig into that. We get into the differences in approach when you're an elite level athlete versus you're sort of a novice athlete like I am and how music affects those two different groups differently. And like most of my episodes, we talk about entrepreneurship. Adam is lucky enough to love sports, love coaching, and he's spent his entire professional career in this arena. So we talk about how that works, how he's managed to do that. Think of this as a how-to. If you are looking to get out of your corporate grind and pursue a passion, here's a guy who's done that, and he didn't even have to do much of the corporate grind to get there. So without further ado, let's get to this week's episode. You can find it on iTunes, you can find it on Stitcher, or you can listen live always at the John of All Trades website, which is J-O-N of all trades.us. It's episode 104 with Adam St. Pierre. He is the founder of ASTP Coaching, and his episode starts right now. It was kind of a, a pathetic morning because I only had one kid show up. <laughs> 
but we went for a roller ski up Sunshine Canyon in Boulder. What's a roller ski? So roller skiing is a method for training for cross-country skiing um, in the summer. So essentially okay. you've got these – they're sort of like elongated roller blades. Okay. Um, they're not as long as a real ski, but they're, they're not short. They're maybe three feet long with, with two wheels. Um, so it's a way to mimic cross-country skiing on okay. asphalt. So is it kind of a similar deal where like – your foot is in a bind, like in a toe binding. Yeah. And so like, it's the same motion though. Yeah. Yeah. You wear the same exact boots you do in the winter. Um, the bindings are the same as on cross country skis. They're just connected to these, uh, wheeled devices. <laughs> wow. And I mean, my high school didn't have a cross country ski team. Uh, how many high schools actually have a program like that? So it, it varies around the country. Some parts of the country, Minnesota, for instance, high school skiing is huge. Alaska, huge. Sure. Thousands of athletes participate. Um, here in Colorado, there are teams specifically affiliated with high school that compete in Chassa, the, the Colorado High School Athletic Association. Yeah. Uh, my team is actually a club. Um, so we nice. have members from five or six different high schools around Boulder, around the Front Range. We actually have kids as young as eight as well. So we'll have <laughs> middle school, elementary school kids. Yeah, we had we had seventy, almost 70 kids in the club last year, um, and hopefully wow. we'll be about the same this year. And so if they're doing club, like, does that mean they, like, do they have to pay to be a part of this? Yeah, they pay. Um, it's just a, a team fee or a team okay. due. I've got myself. And then uh, we have one other kind of full-time coach that works mostly with the young kids. Yeah. Um, and then it, we may have, you know, another dozen assistant coaches just because the the really young kids require a fair bit of supervision. So. <laughs> uh, get out of here. So how far will you take them on a roller ski? Like, or your one kid, I guess, today? Well, today was easy. It, it was about five miles, um, but okay. it's all uphill. So it took a little over an hour. But, you know, last Wednesday we skied closer to 10 or 12 miles um, in slightly flatter terrain. Okay. Well, crazy. So sitting here with Adam St. Pierre, and you have ASTP coaching. Is that right? Yeah, that is my kind of my side business. Your side business? Um, yeah, the... Coaching the Boulder Nordic Junior Racing Team is, is more my primary. Okay. Um, well, at least that's where most of my time goes. <laughs> sure. Um, and then uh, about a year and a half ago, I started ASTP coaching around the time um, our son was born, so I'd have a little more flexibility to um, stay home with him in the event of sickness and not being able to go to daycare. Um, sure. It's actually been a, it's been a great change. I think I'm a, a much better coach for it. Yeah? In what way? Well, previously I was coaching through the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, where I was an exercise physiologist, and you know I was it, it was it was an office job. You clock in, clock out. Right. I worked from you know nine till three essentially. But coaching isn't really a nine to three kind of job or a nine to five. It's you know answering a text at ten p.m. or shooting off an email at you know seven a.m. or right. um, looking over a training log or. It's it's very flexible and it sort of needs to be. Um, so I think not having to to cram it into the the nine to three hours has been really good. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the people who listen to this show regularly are pr probably tired of me talking about this. But <laughs> when I was in corporate, one of the hardest things for me because I worked a corporate job until about a year and a half ago was just having to go there. And it's like this is when you have to be here, no matter how busy you are. And even if a lot of what I did, because I had stuff at night, you know, I would do events, I'm in PR and stuff sure. like that. I'd still have to be there at the same time in the morning. And I'm going, there's got to be a better way yeah. to do this. And it's so frustrating because it's like, okay, you're coaching from nine to three. Well, that's when a lot of people are working because I imagine the sports you're doing, you're not working with people whose 
who have the ability to have a full-time gig being an athlete. Is exactly. that accurate? Yeah, most of my athletes, well, a, a great deal are students. Um, yeah. So obviously they're committed during the day. Um, but then my adult athletes, yeah, most have real jobs. Um, so they're training from like 5 to 7 a.m. And, right. and and 6 to 8 p.m. are the, the prime hour. So if I can be available around those times to answer any last-minute questions, that's ideal, or the, the lunch hour. Um, I like to try to grab coffee or grab lunch with athletes whenever possible. No, I mean, that makes good sense too, because, you know, while people are, are taking their athletic pursuits seriously enough to hire a coach, it's still, would you call it still largely a hobby for a lot of these folks? For for most people, you know, in, in the sports I coach, um, cross-country skiing, uh, ski mountaineering, racing, trail running, ultra running, that there's not a ton of money. There's only a <laughs> handful of people that are making a legitimate living at it. Um, and then there's many more for whom it's, you know, it might be their passion, but it's definitely a hobby. Right. Well, for you, I mean, it, it strikes me that if, if you have the ability to coach this, then this was, this probably started as a hobby for you, right? Yeah. Was it difficult to take something you love as a hobby like this? Because this is one of the things I'm most interested in. So many people feel like they are trapped in a job that they don't love that, you know, they're not passionate about and they have this other thing that they do that they love. Yeah. How were you able to make that transition or have you been doing this your entire life? You know, I consider myself very lucky. Um, I mean, I was always an athlete in high school and, um, I cross country ski raced in college and after college, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, right. I majored in physics and biochemistry and Jeez. sort of assumed I'd, I'd be a teacher maybe. Okay. Um, and I think coaching is sort of teaching, but um, sure, yeah. I luckily fell into a graduate program where I got paid to get a master's in exercise physiology. And um, at that time, I started coaching. Uh, Wait, okay. So I want to stop there. How did you – so you got paid to get a master's degree because yeah. I did the same thing. So how, like, how did that work? So I had a, an, an assistantship um, at the University of New Hampshire. So okay. I, I oversaw the physiology lab. I assisted in research and I – cleaned up essentially. Okay. Um, and that allowed me to, to get my, my graduate education. Right. So like they covered your tuition and what, like a monthly stipend? Yep. The monthly stipend, okay. which as a, a young college guy, single and no commitments, I could live quite well off of. Yeah. Me too. With beer money left over. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. Uh, I, same deal for me right after undergrad, I didn't know what I wanted to do either. And so I went straight through to graduate school. And as part of my assistantship was we had to teach public speaking. So over the course of two years, you had a bunch of graduate students teaching, I think all told six classes. Then I taught one in the summer. So it was seven classes. But I think, so this was like 04 to 06. They paid us something like $1,100 a month. Yeah. Something. Does that sound about right? It sounds about right. Okay. And I remember thinking like I, I used to work during the summer when I was an undergrad and then I just watched that money sort of erode away over the course of the year. And then I watched it slowly go up because I wasn't used to having any money. So I lived lean. Yeah. Same deal. Yeah, totally. I mean, $35 a week on groceries and (laughs) have have two roommates in a dumpy little apartment. Yeah. Major expenditure was beer. Um, yeah, mine too. I was in grad school in 2004, um, which as a Red Sox fan is a fairly banner year. Yeah. Um, but between my two roommates and I, we, we spent a fair amount on booze during the playoffs. Yeah, I'll bet. And sorry about the cat. He's very friendly. No worries. He's going to demand that you pet him. Yeah, at all times. Yeah, he, he's got what we call a consent issue. Yeah. That, <laughs> I've got a dog who's the same. Okay. And uh, he's like, hey, new guy, I don't get any love here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, it was funny. I and so you said it was University of New Hampshire. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what was that college town like? Was it cool? Durham is a really cool college town. So in undergrad, I was in uh, Colby College in Maine, which is in Waterville, which is sort of a it's an old mill town. Um, it's a beautiful campus with lots of activities, but it's a very residential campus. So everyone was there. And then UNH is a very commuter campus, so the okay. the, the campus itself wasn't real thriving, but the uh, the town itself, you know, plenty of bars and restaurants and great entertainment for for college kids. Nice. And the thing, shut up. The thing, the thing that I liked so much about uh, Fort Collins was you could you could go drink all night on like twenty bucks. Yeah, was it same yeah. deal in your yeah town? college towns? Yeah, they're pretty wonderful. Yeah, they're pretty amazing in that way. So okay, so you're in grad school, you're working this lab, and what what were the next steps? So I had a great coach in college, um, and she kind of instilled you know a lot of the the background knowledge in me without me even knowing it about how to coach. My wife was a year behind me. Um, so she was still ski racing when I was in grad school. So I was actually her assistant coach, um, my first year grad school, her senior year. Um, and that just kind of showed me, Hey, this coaching thing, I, I like it. Um, and it goes along well with the, uh, the degree I'm getting and that's sort of the direction I wanted to take. And it just kind of worked out that when I finished grad school, there was an opening, um, for a coaching position in Boulder, Colorado. Um, my wife went to law school at, at CU Boulder and I've been coaching, entering my 11th season. Wow. So so you never, I mean, you, you described sort of working in an office at your previous gig. Yeah. But you've never really sort of had to grind it out at some corporate job that was unsatisfying, right? No, I've, I, I, I was lucky. When I was, uh, when we first moved to Boulder, you know, I, I pieced together a lot of things. I was coaching some fitness boot camps and I was doing um, some part-time work and I worked at a ski shop and really luckily fell into an exercise physiology position at the the center for sports medicine. Um, so I started out there just 10 hours a week, kind of one thing among many and was able to expand that to the point where I was, I was full time there while ski coaching. Wow. Um, so it was, it was pretty intense. Wow. That's really cool, man. I, it's gotta be heartening if, if you're listening to this and you have an interest in that, that like, Hey, you can do it. Yeah. You can definitely make it work. And so what would you say is, is the big key, like the big trick to making it work that way? I think a lot of it is, is being personable. Um, as a coach, I mean, it's all about building relationships. So being able to, to not necessarily sell yourself, but to, to get people to see value in working with you, um, mm-hmm. and value, you know, that, that they gain value from your, uh, your experience. Yeah. Kind of being, being willing to take a chance. It, it got really not static, but it was really easy to, to stay. You know, I had this good routine going I, sure. I, for like three years and everything was great. But then, you know, I finally took the leap and, and jumped out and started my own coaching business. And it's been better than I ever could have anticipated. I couldn't agree more when I started my own business. And what's so funny is, you know, people will talk about like, I'm in a rut, you know, yeah, I'm in a yeah. rut at work and it sucks. And you feel some existential you know, discomfort about it. Yeah. But the hard thing is the rut is also comfortable. Yeah. Very. It's, it's super easy to just stay in that path. The, it's, I think it's the inertia of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Like you, you, you're sort of coasting at that point. I do think everyone at some point should watch the movie office space and then work <laughs> an office job. Um, and, and you realize like just how silly some things are, yeah. um, about, you know, the, just the chain of command and, and bureaucracy of working in any organization, but it's just, it's, it's sometimes it, you feel, you feel hamstrung, you feel handcuffed. Right. Um, so now being able to do 
you know, I, I answer to myself and, and my wife. Um, <laughs> sure. But and your child. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Finley makes makes some some demands too. So. Yeah, one hundred percent. So okay, I since you brought up fitness boot camp, that was a I would call that and correct me if I'm being unfair here. I would call that sort of a fitness trend. Like it was like the it fitness trend of like five years ago. Totally. Right. Yeah. And now it seems like, and I bring this up because one of the most recent episodes I had was with Justin Bakery, who is the owner of station 26 brewing. Okay. And when he wanted to get the space for his brewery, it was originally going to be like this CrossFit studio. Yeah. Yeah. And what he said, it's a box. Call it a box. They get mad. (laughs) Uh, really? Uh, I, <laughs> fair enough. You can tell I'm not a CrossFitter. But, uh, he said, look, five years ago, no one had ever heard of CrossFit. Five yeah. years from now, no one's going to give a shit about CrossFit. <laughs> Working in sort of the sports and fitness industry, is that fair to say? And, you know, what's your take on sort of the fitness trends du jour? So it's interesting, you know, the, the fitness boot camps I coached, they're similar to CrossFit in many ways. Um, in that, you know, a variety of movements, you know, full body squats and lunges and, and um, a lot of exercises we used in cross-country skiing to, to stay fit and strong. Right, sure. And now, you know, CrossFit has kind of taken them one big jump forward. You know, I was doing these boot camps at like parks. So you're using right. trees and hills and whatnot. And then you go into a, a CrossFit gym or a box or studio, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, and they've got, you know, squat racks and, and barbells galore and, and all the all the equipment. I personally, like I did CrossFit for like a year and a half before my son was born yeah. um, and I loved it, you know, but I have a background in, in strength training and I've done Olympic lifting and all that. So there, there's certainly people for whom CrossFit is great and there's people who probably ought to avoid it. Sure. Um, but I think that the nice thing about CrossFit is it's it's something you can incorporate into any training program. Okay. Um, so when I was doing CrossFit, I was doing it maybe three times a week, but I was still running six to seven days a week, sometimes twice um, a day. So I was putting in a ton of mileage. This was before Finley, you know, you had all this free time before you have kids. Um, (laughs) And 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 I was as fit as I've ever been. It was incredible. It's funny. You look back to before you had kids, you're like, how did I, what did I do all day? You're like, was I out there tilling wheat? Like, I I cannot remember how I would spend a lot of the hours. They they fly by now. Yeah, Um, no kidding. But yeah, I think, you know, I, I incorporate strength training with all the athletes I work with. For my, my high school kids, I work with a uh, physical therapist um, who's also a strength and conditioning coach. And he puts them through, you know, circuit-style workouts, similar to CrossFit in many ways, but also very dissimilar in some key ways. Okay. I mean, one big thing about CrossFit is their, you know, one of their tenets is, is constantly varied, um, which is sure. great. You know, variety is good. Um, and if your goal is to just be a very well-rounded athlete, then CrossFit might be good for you. Um, but for the athletes I work with where we're doing strength training as a way to improve performance in running or in skiing, we, we keep it a little more focused, um, yeah. a little more specific. Well, yeah, and, and you've got – you need not, – not just to be well-rounded, although I'm sure being well-rounded if if you're you know a high-performance cr- cross-country skier or an ultramarathon or whatever is important, but you've also got some – some specialization, like some, some very specialized moves that are for utility that are entirely targeted towards performance. Yeah, exactly. That was a clumsy way of explaining it, but (laughs) is that, is that fairly accurate? Yeah. I mean, the principle of specificity is one of the the basic tenets of exercise physiology, and it pretty much says, do what you want to get good at. 
If you want to be a really good runner, you probably ought to run. Right. Um, if you want to be really good at the bench press, you probably should do the bench press. Right. Um, but at the elite level, um, there are ways to, to supplement. Most of the athletes I work with don't have time to run a hundred plus miles a week, but they have the ability to run 70 miles a week and do some strength training and maybe they're at the pool. So we can create this, this, this total package. Um, and for, for many athletes, they have to do some additional work. Um, in order to support their primary work, okay, um, or to improve the quality of their their primary work. Sure. So when you're when you're dealing with an athlete at any level, whether they're high school, whether they're sort of uh, a hobbyist, or whether they're elite level athletes, because looking around your website, you'll see that you work with the full spectrum. Exactly. <laughs> how how do you structure a training program and a coaching program that allows someone to call it level up? You know, how do you, how do you get someone to a breakthrough point and you know, what goes into designing a program like that Yeah, for someone, if you can talk about it in the abstract. I mean, what's, what's really interesting to me is, you know, I, I coach like people who compete at world championships and I coach, you know, a guy who he, he won his entry to a 50 miler and decided, Oh, I better start training. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, just this whole spectrum, he finished and was awesome. No kidding. But the, the, you know, the, the basics are you have to find out how much time do you have to commit to this this hobby? Mm-hmm. Um, if you say you've got an hour a day, then I'll plan 45 minutes of you for that day because you're lying to me when you say you have an hour. <laughs> um, most people drastically overestimate. But essentially, you find out... <laughs> Why is that? Do you think? <laughs> I don't know. People always want to come off like they have more time than they think. But you try to try to structure it to make the best use of whatever time you have. Sure. You know, For an elite competitor, they typically either have more time or are able to commit more time. And whether that's a cause and effect relationship, I don't really know, um, but right. it's likely. And then you just try to maximize use of that time. Once you're into the, the planning, the minutia of each workout, you know, what hill should you climb and how many times should you climb it? That's pretty simple. You know, physiology is okay. pretty simple. You, you train as much as you can easy, include some kind of higher intensity or harder work once in a while. It's more about finding a routine that will work for each person. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. And that's got to be one of the most, that's probably both the most fun thing about your job and the most challenging. Yeah, it, it can be. Um, there's, there's definitely athletes that make it really easy. Sure. Um, the ones that, you know, are, are, you know, this is my time to work out. You know, this is what I have access to do it. And that's, that's great. Um, then you can, I can spend my mental energy on, you know, how to best use that time. And then I have a handful of athletes where it's more like, all right, how are we going to get any any time in with your commute and your job and your family and right. and all this other stuff and it's it's a different challenge for sure you know the variety keeps it really interesting for me and you know sometimes I find something that you know works really well with this woman let's try it over here with with this guy um, see if it fits um, sometimes it does and and you get lucky and you continue down that path and sometimes you have to make a one eighty and try something <laughs> different. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. Okay, so as we record this, the Olympics are just about to start. Yeah, tonight. Yeah, which is exciting. I love the Olympics every year. And one of the criticisms I heard recently, which I thought was insane, someone said they didn't like the Olympics because it's it's sports presented for non-sports fans. <laughs> which, okay, that's an issue with NBC. Yeah. Uh, and, and the way the Olympics are presented. And, you know, I could certainly take issue with that, with the sports that they choose to show. I, like, I want to see the obscure stuff. Yeah. You know, you get plenty of swimming, and I grew up as a swimmer. You know, I swam all through high school, and but even even I'm like they maybe show a little bit too much yeah. of this. My question for you is: since you are dealing with athletes of all levels, 
what separates like how much is the separation between an Olympic level athlete and everyone else? It's huge. <laughs> is it really? Um, I, it, it depends on the sport. I mean, you look at a sport like swimming, and there's you know millions of people um, who swim. Yeah. Um, and and you can go to a pool and you see you know the master swim and the the kids programs and you know if, if those kids put in hours and hours and hours and hours of training, um, they they have the potential to be an Olympian. Mm-hmm. Um, and and similarly for track, you know, there's. There's a tier of athletes that that just missed the Olympics, right? Um, but then there's you know the the, the average athlete, um, you know the average marathon time is like four hours, okay. whereas the Olympians are running you know two ten. Um, so <laughs> right. <laughs> so performance wise, there's there's a huge discrepancy. I think the the training it largely comes down to the amount of training. Okay. Um, you know, an elite level athlete will train anywhere from ten to thirty hours a week. And in addition to that, they may spend, you know, more hours doing, you know, some stretching, getting massage, right. planning their nutrition. So for Olympic level athletes, it is a full-time job. Sure. There are many, you know, success stories of people who, you know, train for the Olympics with a full-time job. Um, right. And those are what I think NBC loves to focus on because, <laughs> you know, they, they inspire us. Sure. Um, but I think that the true champions, you know, at, at the Olympic level that they do one thing and they do one thing very well. Well, how much of that in terms of like, because you focus a lot on endurance sports and, you know, I'd call cross country skiing and ultra marathoning. Those are obviously endurance sports, obviously something like (laughs) sprinting though. I mean, if you don't have a certain genetic predisposition or a certain level of fast twitch muscle, no amount of training will ever get you to be an Olympic sprinter. Is yeah. that fair to say? It's totally fair to say. There's actually a great book out there, David Epstein, The Sports Gene. Okay. Um, and it just talks about, you know, th- there are freaks of nature out there that are just right. so perfectly built. Like Michael Phelps is always a great example. Like, oh, he's got big feet and floppy ankles and <laughs> right. short legs and long torso, whatever. He's, he's built to be a swimmer. Yeah, and huge hands like paddles. Yeah, yeah. he's built to swim. Right. Um, if he had decided at 10 years old that he wanted to be a runner, would he have the same level of Olympic success, you know, running? Right. I can't say that he wouldn't for sure, but it's, it's likely not. Yeah. Um, you know, so that there's certainly some, some genetic, um, necessities, you know, you're, you're not going to be an Olympic basketball player or high jumper if you're five feet tall. Right. Sorry. And, <laughs> yeah. You could be a great gymnast. That's um, true. There was a picture going around of, you know, one of the volleyball guys at six, eight and one of the gymnastics girls at four, eight, yeah. um, you know, different, different body types, but their body is ideal for the sport they're doing. So it, are you ever working with someone as a trainer where you look at them and it's like, okay, look, you really want to be an ultra marathoner, but you are not built for this. Do you ever steer them away from that? <laughs> I, I try not to. Um, so my background, one of the things I did um, when I was at the Center for Sports Medicine was um, running biomechanical analysis. Okay. And my favorite part of that was taking people who, you know, I, I, I can't run, I haven't run in 10 years, and, and fixing them, um, putting them back together, getting them, you know, able to run. Okay. Um, like I took a guy who uh, he, he hadn't been able to run for like 10 years because of knee pain, um, and we did an Ironman you know, a year and a half later. Really? Um, you know, we, we started with, with baby steps, you know, run for 30 seconds and, and walk. But, you know, taking someone who people had told him before, you know, you shouldn't be a runner. Stick to biking, stick to swimming, whatever. Yeah. I, I like to I like to overcome that. So, okay. So, I mean, how like how does one do that? If, if you have a knee that, you know, is wrecked and you haven't run in that long, how do you, you know, I mean, you mentioned biomechanics. 
how does that work? How does that unfold? How do you overcome those issues? Sure. I mean, th- there's a number of running flaws um, that can exacerbate uh, existing issues. Okay. Um, and sometimes it's identifying them and, and actually changing the way you run. Um, sometimes it's addressing underlying, you know, strength or flexibility imbalances or, or deficiencies, mm. um, and, and addressing those. And, and often it's a combination of both. Okay. Um, and then it's just a matter of, of, of building up over time. And that being said, you know, there are people, you know, if you had an ACL repair in 1988, you, you probably don't want to be a runner, right. um, you know, and, and there's certainly conditions that would preclude you from getting a ton of enjoyment running. Um, but for the people who are just like, oh yeah, I, I got shin splints in high school and I haven't run since. Well, that's that's someone that that's not a good enough excuse, <laughs> right? It's, it's largely about you know moderating the the way you run, kind of the the things you do around running, um, and then the actual you know volume you run. Um, some people think, oh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna start running, I'm gonna get off the couch and I go out for a five or six mile run. Yeah. Then you're sore for a week. And maybe you go out the next week or maybe you don't. But convincing people that it's okay to start out, you know, with, with a walk or with a run walk or, yeah. you know, run for 10 minutes, yeah. um, you know, the, the baby steps approach. No, I mean, that's tough. When I when I started running, um, I, I decided – and I haven't run for a while, uh, mostly once my daughter was born. <laughs> uh, you know, certain things just fall off the end of the bench in yeah. terms of your priorities. Exactly. But I got out there and I, I did sort of a run walk and I did like two miles. And at the end of it, I felt horrid, <laughs> you know, just like my lungs burned, my thighs were rubbing together, like everything on me hurt. And for some reason, I got out there and did it the next day and yeah. it was a little bit less worse. Yeah. And then the third time was a little bit less worse. And then eventually, you know, I, I was running two miles in under 20 minutes, which was yeah. which was a great Moving. milestone for me. And it was huge. And I'd get done with that and I'd be terribly out of breath, but it's like, wow, it was yeah. such a cool feeling. The, the yeah. runner's high, the accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I think, I feel like running is particularly hard to get started because those first few times just feel so awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and people will talk about if they take a, a couple weeks off after a big race or something and they start back in and they just, they feel terrible. Like, like runners who do this a lot, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, and it takes, takes a while to get, get back into it, get back into your groove. Um, but one thing a lot of people make the mistake too, is, you know, you go out for your, your two mile run and you're just huffing and puffing and, you know, you're trying to run that two miles as fast as you can every day. Um, that's a real common mistake. It's, it's much easier. It's, it's healthier. It's better on the body to start easy. And, you know, I've had a number of athletes who, you know, were injured for years and years and years and, you know, they really wanted to be runners and they, they saw some some transient success interspersed with injuries. And the biggest thing you got to do is convince them it's okay to run slower. Huh. Um, you don't have to kill yourself every workout. And that's, that's a kind of a big thing that a lot of Americans, um, have trouble with. We want like immediate results and you yeah. know, no pain, no gain and, and <laughs> harder is better. Um, and in many endurance sports running in particular, it's not always the case. Do you ever get pushback from some of your do you call them clients? Do you call them? Yeah, clients or athletes. Okay. Do you ever get pushback from some of your athletes? You know, it, it's like, what are we doing here? Are, are we not going to go harder? Like, yeah. Does that ever happen? Yeah. I mean, some some folks, you know, they come in either because they've, you know, been training for, for years and years and years on their own and maybe seen some success that way. And they come in with some preconceived notions. Right. Um, there's a lot of blogs and stuff out there. You know, people will be like, well, well, this guy's running, you know, 130 miles a week and that guy doesn't eat any carbohydrates and that guy doesn't believe in, 
I don't know, sleeping. I don't know. You're right, um, yeah. But there, there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there. And people will read and, and try to combine things that don't necessarily go together well. So there's a lot of yeah, self-diagnosis and, and, and self-coaching that goes on. Um, and sometimes you have to, you know, gain trust. Sure. Um, you've got to convince, you know, convince your athlete or convince your client that, you know, your, your way will work. Right. Once they trust you, then, then you can start really working with them. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a great point. And it's something that's come up on this show again and again and again with photographers. You know, people will say, I know how to take a photo. You know, I, I can, I can take really good photos. Everyone tells me I take great photos. It's like, well, okay. Yeah. But there's. A level of expertise. It's almost like when you talk about between the Olympics and between everyone else. There's a level of expertise if you're a professional and you dedicate your entire life to this. Yeah. Versus if you're sort of a hobbyist and you're compiling and stitching together knowledge that you have from these disparate places, but you're not doing it all day every day. Yeah. Um, Just because you have a million Instagram followers doesn't mean you're a photographer. Exactly. <laughs> Just because you read a running blog doesn't mean you, you can self-diagnose advice. Yeah. Right? I mean – in what I do, I mean, I do communications consulting and, you know, people will be like, well, you know, I wrote this press release. I didn't get the response. And I'm like, well, your press release sucked. Yeah. Like you may have Googled a press release once in a while, but this is my job. Yeah. And I write these. Exactly. So it, it's your, it's your expertise that, that people pay for. And what's so funny is some people will resist that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like they're, they're paying you for this, but then they go, well, but you know, I still know better. And it's like, well, then why am I even here? Yeah. What, what do you hope to gain from this interaction? <laughs> okay, so shifting gears a little bit, something I'm curious about, uh, and I've always wondered this about coaches. Coaches get into whatever it is you're coaching because you love that sport, that activity, that whatever it is that you're coaching. How much time are you afforded to actually pursue that on your own and not just with your athletes? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I started out, with cross country skiing. So in the winter I'm on skis a lot and I, I, oh, I, I do a lot of ski training. Um, I'm not necessarily training to race myself, but I, I stay okay. Okay. Shape sure. for skiing. I try to race once in a while just because I think it's important for the, the kids and the athletes I work with to, to, to see that, yeah. um, and to see how, you know, I approach races and how I, you know, train and rest and, and recover. And I think it's a good, a good learning tool. As a coach, I think it's important that you stay close to competition um, so that you remember, oh, yeah, yeah, you're nervous before a race. I get nervous before a race, too. This is what helps me. Maybe it will help you. Yeah. That being said, I don't compete in, in skiing a ton anymore um, just because I, I travel a fair amount and I spend um, a lot of time coaching in the winter. So I, I do more of my competition in the summer and fall with, uh, with the ultra runs. And I think there it's been potentially even more important to have the race experience to draw on to then disseminate to, to people who may be trying their first hundred mile or, or maybe yeah. they've, you know, failed three times and they really want to succeed this time. And just having this, this ability like, yeah, I've, I've done that and I've made that mistake and I've done that and here's what helped me. Yeah. So I think it's important to, to maintain a pretty good level of fitness and to stay close to competition. You know, I, I don't, I don't win races. I'm not at an elite level competitor at, at that level but i i try to compete i, I generally sure. go into races with a fairly kind of a, a stretch goal and see what happens yeah but you'll finish 100 right oh yeah i've i've never not finished okay whether i'm stubborn or smart i don't know <laughs> but. yeah well i mean could be both yeah a little bit of both you have to be a little bit of both well it's funny we were talking shortly before we turned the mics on 
about, I think it was episode 61, I had Bard Parnell on here. And he's done some some ultra marathoning, and he's done like the Grand Canyon rim to rim to rim. Yeah. Have you done that one? Not yet, but I may in October with a bunch of friends. Nice, cool. <laughs> but he did like the Uray one hundred. Yep. Uh, and I think he just did the Tahoe one hundred. Yeah. Which uh, I, I, you know, he's not here. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but based on what he wrote on Facebook, like it didn't go the way he yeah. wanted it to, and I think he was having some like gastrointestinal trouble during it. What is it like not only preparing for an ultra marathon, but when you're in it? Like, what what is that experience like? I think it's probably different for everyone, and and it probably comes down to your goals. You know, there's a lot yeah, of no, people but for you. Yeah, for me, you know, I'm often going in with with a number of goals. You know, kind of like A, B, C, D. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, if all goes well, these happen. If if things go less well, but I guess for me, I'm always in search of like the the perfect race. Okay, um, where. You know, you, you don't have any stomach troubles. You don't get any blisters. You don't, you know, you, you don't make any mistakes. Right. You don't roll your ankle on a rock. Exactly. Or right. Yeah. And and the nice, well, I think what keeps me coming back to to the ultras and the long runs is that no one has a perfect race. Okay. There's always something that you can do better the next time. So I I like the fact that it's at at some point in an ultra marathon it will become a test of who's the toughest <laughs> because you know after eighty miles everyone's tired yeah like everyone could think of a dozen reasons to stop right there but talking yourself out of that and continuing on and, and persevering and that's what I enjoy about it. What are some of the tricks like if you've run eighty miles and you know it's three o'clock in the morning or. <laughs> You know, or even worse, perhaps it's three o'clock in the afternoon yeah. and it's hot, yeah. right? Like, how do you? Because I mean, it, there's there's always the the internal motivation, you know, the don't give up, like that. I think if you are geared towards running a hundred miles, everyone's got that at least in some measure. Yeah. But there's got to be some practical tricks that will get you to put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Can you share I've, some of I've, those with me? I've used a variety. So I've only run. I've run, I think, four 100s and, and a number of 50 milers, but I've also paced a lot. Oh, yeah, um, sure. Most races in the second half of the race, you can have a, a pacer for, for safety and company. And I've actually learned a lot by pacing, you know, the different strategies. You know, some people, you know, they, they want you to tell them that if you finish this race, you can never, you never have to run again. You know, you can retire. <laughs> and like, that can be really motivating. And, and maybe they finish the race and like, oh, that wasn't so bad. I'll do another one. Yeah, sure. Um, and and for some people, you know, it's it's hey, we get to see your family at the next aid station, or you know, we, I, I we, really, get to, we get to eat a piece of watermelon. Okay, I really like the idea of if you finish this, you never have to run again. Like yeah. someone's making them do yeah. this. <laughs> well, I had to do. I mean, I, I think it was probably I'd probably done a dozen or more ultras before I had a race where I didn't actually say to myself, "I am never doing another one." <laughs> right. Um, and now I'm on a streak of like two or three where. Where I've I've enjoyed the entire experience. Oh, good. Um, so I think hopefully that bodes well for the future. So it's okay. So you can say things like you'll see your family at the next aid station, or you know you get a piece of watermelon. Yeah. Or, and what's so funny? One thing Bard told me, and uh, I, I'd like to verify this with you, is that when you are burning that many calories, you you pretty much can can eat whatever. Because you're, you're going to burn it so quickly, it's almost like jet fuel. I mean, right? during a race, yeah, eighty percent of ultra runners experience some sort of stomach upset um, oh. in a race. Mm-hmm. And there's ways you can train and ways you can prepare before the race to to try to minimize that. Um, and you know, you try to practice and eat familiar things and whatever. But most people will experience some some upset. 
Huh. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just biology during exercise. You're not primed for digestion and oh, yeah. during digestion, you're not primed for exercise. So trying to do them both <laughs> at once is, uh, is really tricky for the body. So it's, it's sort of a, a matter of, yeah, get, get in as many calories as you can. Ideally you plan it such that your stomach doesn't revolt on you. Wow. So, okay. That, that begs the question doing these ultra marathons where, I mean, how, how long will it, will a hundred take? The ones I've done have taken me between essentially 22 and 24 hours. Okay. So, I mean, and, and I recognize, you know, there are times where, where you'll stop, like yeah. you're, you're not in motion. Yeah. Like yeah. You might, you might stop and sit, change your shoes, change your socks, whatever. Right. So, I mean, you're sitting for what, five, 10, 30 minutes at a time. It, it, it totally depends. You know, some people won't sit at all. Okay. Um, you know, they prefer to stay standing. Some people might sit for 30 seconds here or there. Okay. You know, some people, you may come into an aid station and you're, you're just feeling really lousy and you might take a nap. Huh. Um, and if you've got the time, you can wake up and feel better and cross the finish line. So, wow. um, there's, there's a number of different strategies out there. Okay. So coming around to that question, if you are exercising for 22 or 24 <laughs> hours at a time and you're trying to make your body do these two things that, under normal circumstances, you could probably call them mutually exclusive, right? Yeah, yeah. So what compels you to do it? Because it, the way you're describing it, it almost feels like something that shouldn't be done. Yeah, it's, I mean, why do you do it? Well, because you can. Um, <laughs> but there, there's a lot of... Right, why climb Mount Everest? Because yeah, it's, it's there. there. Yeah. There, there's a lot of kind of fun experimenting. I think, you know, my, my background is in science. And, and I like, you know, I love reading research articles and I love... You know the the number of variables involved in an ultra marathon, and like when I when I worked in a physiology lab, I could test myself regularly, and you can do an actual test in a lab that tells you, okay, at, at this intensity of exercise, you burn you know a thousand calories an hour. Wow. Um, and of those thousand calories, you know maybe five hundred come from fat and five hundred come from carbohydrate, and then you can plan, okay, I need to try to consume five hundred mm-hmm. calories an hour. Wow. Um, so and you're then, very analytical about it. Yeah, very analytical about it. You know, you can get by on trial and error, but it's nice to start with a with a baseline and and work from there. And then, you know, with with a laboratory test like that, you can then check it every year, or every couple of years, or every month and and see how your training's progressing. Are you getting better at the variables you're trying to improve on? But I'm big on on planning, so I'll break a race course down into into segments. You know, most 100 milers have aid stations every 5 to 10 miles which depending on the terrain in between may take anywhere from, you know, 45 minutes to five hours. <laughs> so you kind of have to, to plan accordingly with, you know, how much you have to carry in between, um, how many calories, how much water, yeah. um, that sort of thing. Um, so I like to break races down and, and go in with a pretty, pretty strong plan. Um, and I try to do that with the athletes I work with as well. Um, but once you have that plan in place, you can, you can practice it and you can make sure it's, mm. make sure it, it's valid and make sure it works. And, but then on race day, you've, you've got to know that not everything will go according to plan. That's part of where the fun is. <laughs> Getting in there and improvising, right? Improvising. Exactly. So in terms of your coaching then, because I'm struck by the fact that you're so self-analytical and that helps you with your own, own performance, how much... Uh, analysis, how much of, of that work goes into your work with your clients? A, a lot. Some, not as much as I'd like. Uh, a lot of people get into trail and ultra running because they want this like ephemeral, like I'm moving through the forest, <laughs> I'm climbing the mountains. They don't want to look at heart rate and pace right. and, like this, and all that stuff. This very like poetic yeah, sort yeah. of, yeah, okay. Um, and then there's people who 
you know, they have a power meter on their bike and they've always got their GPS watch and their heart rate monitor and they're on Strava and they're on, and those people are really easy to work with because I have yeah. very or very fundamental pieces of data I can work with. I can say, hey, you know, you were faster up this mountain today than you were six weeks ago. That's a good sign. But I, I, I try to strike a balance between both because I also like, I love data and I love analyzing data, but I also, I just like going and running in the woods and running <laughs> in the mountains. So um, I try to strike that balance and I try to work within that balance. Yeah. Um, and I think most of the people I work the best with are, are in a similar mindset. They want to enjoy just being outdoors and being in the mountains and being on trails, but they also want to get better at it. Um, and they kind of understand that data right. is a tool to get better at what you truly want to do. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I don't know. I don't know how, how closely you follow baseball. But one, th one, one of the Rockies game tomorrow night. Perfect. There you go. One of the things that I'm struck by is you, you have a class of old school baseball writers, and this is sort of tangentially related that hate sabermetrics. Yeah. You know, they hate the advanced statistics. And one thing I will say on their behalf is if you read baseball writing, if you read baseball journalism, it has made it decidedly less fun. Yeah. I think there was one sports writer that compared that, that said you've taken baseball and basically made it as fun as doing your taxes. Yeah. And the people who resist, you know, sort of incorporating analytics, you know, they're using all these apps and, you know, they're timing themselves and they have a heart monitor and all that. Is that sort of a similar vibe that you get from them? I think so. There are people who claim that, that wearing a heart rate monitor detracts from their experience. Huh. <laughs> and, you know, I, I can see it. Like if you're, if you're constantly looking at your watch, yeah, it'll detract from your experience. Yeah. But if you, you know, I, I generally wear it and then look at it after. Okay. Um, and maybe glance at it a few times during and, – and I don't find that to detract from my experience. Sure. Um, but, you know, if, if it does, then, then maybe it's not worth it for you. Yeah. No, I mean I, that's, a, that's a fair point. If – it, it reminds me of going to concerts too. Uh, I I never go to concerts anymore. But the last one I was at, there were a number of people there recording it through their yeah. phone, and they're looking at their phone, and so they have a recording for it later. Yeah. And I go, okay, like I get the instinct to do that. Yeah. But you're not watching it the best way the first yeah. time. You're not in the now. Yeah, and even if you don't capture it exactly, it's going to be better in your head if you're just present and in the moment. Yeah. It's almost like if you're running and you're constantly doing the analytics, you almost miss the point of doing exactly. it in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. And you're really likely to trip and fall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Okay. Something else I wanted to ask you when you're running or when you're exercising, do you like to listen to music? Never, never, never. Maybe if I'm on a treadmill, but I, I, I don't like listening to music when I run. You you totally ruined my question <laughs> it, it, in the best way possible because I was going to say I got a friend who did triathlons and he ran a lot and he never listened to music either. And I, I cannot relate to that impulse. Yeah. What is it? Why not? So they've done a bunch of research looking at running with music and they find that it helps you dissociate from the act of running. For kind of novice recreational runners, a lot of times they want to dissociate because running doesn't feel good. <laughs> right. um, but for a lot of elite runners, they want to associate. So they may, you know, they may run with with music sometimes, you know, on on a recovery workout, a workout that's not real keen. Sure. But like you'll never see an Olympic caliber athlete, you know, on the track doing a key workout 
with headphones in. <laughs> That's true. And you know, they don't they, they never race with them. Ultra races are interesting because some allow you to have headphones. Mm-hmm. Um and many athletes are very successful with headphones and, and and power to them, but I I don't like it. Um that being said, I have kind of like an internal radio. Okay. So I have a list of like 8 or 10 songs that I can you know, hum a few bars and get it stuck in my head. <laughs> and that's been a good strategy for me dealing with, you know, fatigue and, and lack of motivation sure. um, as we go along. Well, I was going to say during 100, one of the challenges got, has got to be staying mentally engaged. Yeah, it's really tough. And a strategy I employ regularly is the goal is not to be engaged 100% of the time, but is to realize when you're not engaged and get back engaged as quickly as possible. Okay. Kind of my example there is I, I ran the Leadville 100 in 2011. And for the first 55 miles, I had Taylor Swift in my head. Oh, jeez. And it was awful. And and I can actually go back. And most of my low points in races, I have a country song in my head. And I, I really like country music. But during running, you know, they, they are not good songs to have stuck in your head. Uh, no. So now, you know, when I see, you know, get the, the country song starting to creep in, I've got that, that mental radio where I can, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hum a little Foo Fighters instead and yeah. put that country out of there. So someone asked me this morning because I've always loved working out to music, whether I'm lifting or running or whatever. Swimming was weird because you can't listen to music yeah. during it. And swimming training is like you're a little bit psychotic if you yeah, do it. so monotonous. It's, it's awful. You know, you're following this black line on the bottom of the pool yep. over and over and over again. And where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. So I had someone on Facebook looking for new workout song suggestions. And two of my favorites are both by Rob Zombie. So Dragula and Super Beast. Yeah. Both ace songs for working out to. But in your internal radio, you mentioned the Foo Fighters. What are some of the songs that you queue up? To get you going. I, I love 90s alt-rock. Okay, perfect. Um, Pearl Jam and Foo Fighters are probably my, my favorites. Rearview Mirror by Pearl Jam is a great one. Okay. Foo Fighters are like Monkey Wrench. Oh, that's a good song, um, yeah. Helter Skelter by the Beatles. Oh, For yeah. For some reason, I really like it. Yeah. Lose Yourself, Eminem. It's always <laughs> a good one when you want to get a little angry. I think that one appears. Uh, 538.com did, you know, which songs are on the most playlists on spotify tagged workout yeah and lose yourself as well yeah it's probably 10. probably way up there yeah probably probably other couple other songs um but those are my go-tos and i think one of the reasons i like music so much when i'm working out is because it makes you feel like you're in a movie montage yeah or something or you're soundtracking your own life yeah which is fun you know it's this whole like almost narcissistic self-mythologizing move but you know i found it doesn't necessarily dissociate me from the movements of running but it almost like propels me yeah. to go forward. Yeah. Well, and that's what I mean. The research has shown listening to music can be really motivating. Yeah. Um, they did a, a, a study where they had people listen to music and work out, you know, run a 5K race or something. And then the next time they had to listen to political discourse. <laughs> um, and when the study was done, they had people listen to like the Bush v. Gore debate. Oh, God. And like people were way slower while listening to, to boring things. And three people died. Yeah. <laughs> fell, fell off the treadmill yeah maybe intentionally yeah <laughs> and just laid there and said okay this is it this i'm is it. i'm done <laughs> no more please please don't subject me to this so okay as an athlete and a coach it's always important to you mentioned during each race you sort of set stretch goals for yourself yep as a business owner as an athlete as a coach 
what are some of those stretch goals that you have for yourself? I mean, racing, it's really easy. You know, you, you can say, I want to be in the top 10 or I want to finish in 24 hour or whatever. But in, in life, it's a little different. So part of being a coach is helping people set goals. Um, so I've, I've practiced a fair bit for myself. Um, and it's important to have process goals and not just outcome goals. Yeah. You know, outcome goals, I want to be top 10. Process goals support that outcome goal. So in order to be top 10, what do I have to do? So I like to look back and, you know, my, my goal for this year was to run 2,500 miles. Wow. Um, over the course of the year, which is something, you know, I did it last year, I did it the year before. It shouldn't be, have been that much of a stretch, but what I wanted to do this year was, was climb more, make those miles a little harder. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I've kind of been uh, injured for the first half of the year, so I'm way behind schedule. What's ailing you? Um, I've had a, a nagging case of plantar fasciitis oh, for God. about a year. Is that as grueling on you as I've heard it is? You know, because it's what undid Peyton Manning, right? It, it, Peyton Manning, I think Kobe Bryant had a had a case of it. It can be because it's just super painful. And the things that's painful, or at least for me and, and I would assume for those two gentlemen, sprinting and jumping and, and changing direction are super painful. Okay. Um, for me, I could, you know, once I started running, it loosened up and I was fine. Um, and whether I should have continued running at that point or not is debatable. <laughs> but sometimes as a coach, you do as I say and not as I do. Yeah. So I, I started noticing last May and then I trained and ran 100 that September and then hoped that kind of running a little less and doing more cross-country skiing through the winter, it would, it would just kind of go away and it didn't. Yeah. Um, so I, I tried a number of, of therapies. Um, I ended up getting a cortisone shot uh, not too long ago and that seems to have have taken it away. So What does it feel like? You know, it, it just like your heel just hurts. Um, <laughs> like, it, is it a sharp pain? Does it ache? Like, it, it's you know achy. For for me, it was achy when I wasn't running. Um, and then then if I tried to sprint or jump, it would be really sharp. Okay. And yeah, it's just annoying because it's never the pain itself is never like you know a seven out of ten. It's just a stupid little two out of ten. Right. That you want to go away. That's there constantly. Yeah. Though. It it reminds me of shortly before my second daughter was born. I slipped on the stairs and I cracked a rib. Yeah. Yeah. Rib and, injuries are terrible. Yeah. And it, like I didn't go to the doctor or anything, but when our pediatrician came in, you know, cause they come and they do rounds, he came in and I'm like, all right, can you, can you check this? And he goes, yeah, that's going to hurt for like two months. Yeah. And I go, God, like, and it still hurt. If I sneeze, God yeah. help me. Yeah. Sneezing, coughing, <laughs> laughing. Yeah. All not recommended for <laughs> rib injuries. No, it's brutal. So in terms of your business, though, getting back to your goals, yeah, you know, what, what are some things that, that you haven't necessarily done or, you know, people you've worked with that you haven't that, that you're looking for? Well, one of my, my stated goals as a coach is I want to work with um, an athlete that either goes on to become an Olympian. So if I'm coaching a 16-year-old, you know, I want them to go on and, you know, be an Olympian at, at 24 um, or, or to coach an Olympian. And kind of conveniently, the uh, the International Olympic Committee is just recognized ski mountaineering um, oh. as as a as a sport. Um, the governing body for ski mountaineering, the ISSMA, um, is now recognized by the Olympic Committee as like the the world governing body for for ski mountaineering. So I think ski mountaineering may show up in 2022 um, as a, as an Olympic sport and. Maybe I'll have an athlete there. Could be interesting. That'd be cool. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of one of my goals. That I want I want to help athletes achieve essentially the ultimate success in their sport. You know, a variety of other goals. You know, business wise, I, I just want to 
you know, have a, a good balance between how much time I put in and, and how much financial compensation I have. I want to be able to provide my half of support for the family. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's that's the main goal. And then, you know, just work with athletes towards their goals. Sure. Someone asked me once, what, you know, where do I see my consulting business in five years? And I go, as long as I'm successful enough not to have to crawl back into a corporate job, yeah, yeah. I'll be just fine. Yeah, as long as the, uh, the, the balance sheet, you know, stays close to level. Yeah. Yeah, as long as we're we're sort of in the black here, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So, well, I'll tell you what, Adam, this was enormously enlightening for me. This this was fantastic. I I'm fascinated by the work that you do working with athletes. I think it's tremendous. And uh, now's the time in the show where give us the plug, man. Where can we find you? <laughs> where where can we find your website? Uh, anything you want to plug? Do it now. Um, so my website is is astpcoaching.com. Um, I haven't updated it in a while because. Web development is not my strength, <laughs> right? Um, but you can you can find me there. Um, all my contact info is on there. If you're interested in, you know, ski mountaineering or trail running or ultra running or, you know, I've got one athlete doing the Boulder Ironman. You know, I, I work with a variety of athletes in a variety of sports, and um, I'd love to uh, to help you out. Fantastic, man! All right, well, uh, Adam Saint Pierre, thanks for being on the show and continued success to you, my man. Thank you very much, John. That'll do it for episode 104 of the John of All Trades podcast with Adam St. Pierre. Check out his website at astpcoaching.com and see what he's all about. He's got great insights. He's got cool blogs. He talks about running endurance races. There's just a lot going on there. And big thanks to him for being on the show. Hey, you want to connect with the John of All Trades podcast? Do so on social media. We have four sites, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest, all of them under the same handle, J-O-A-T-Pod. You'll find cool stuff on each one of those platforms. I try to make them unique. I do the best that I can. So like us or follow us or pin us or snap us, whatever. Do whatever you want on any of those platforms. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. That's D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Communication Consulting Services, a go-go. And our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. As we approach campaign season, I know that 4 Degrees is cooking on all cylinders. So if you need to reach people, they are the folks to help you do it. They will target your online campaign. They will supercharge your social media engagement. And they will connect you with the people who most need to hear your message and do it in a very cost-effective fashion. So check them out too. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. I got a fresh episode coming next week. Hopefully I do a little bit better getting into and out of the questions. But uh, who knows? These two babies are frying my brain. Exclusive episode previews are on Facebook, so check us out at J-O-A-T Pod. And until next week, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.